Hello, I'm Rob Buckingham. Welcome to Digging Deeper, episode 56. Through each podcast episode, we dig deeper into a theme or topic to see what the Bible says about it. This episode explores the story of the cursing of a fig tree and Jesus expelling the merchants from the Jerusalem temple. Both events are linked and the message Jesus was communicating is incredibly relevant to the church today. But first, on several occasions, Jesus instructed people not to tell anyone that he had healed them. Surely they'd want to shout the good news from the rooftops. So why did Jesus tell them to remain silent? Let's find out. I wonder why Jesus asked Jairus to keep quiet when he had just brought their daughter back to life. All the people knew she was dead. How could one not shout it from the rooftop, she is alive? Great question, and uh, I will do my very best to answer this. The story that's being referred to there is recorded for us in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43, and uh, the Comparable story is recorded in Matthew chapter 9 and Luke chapter 8, but I'll read Mark's version to you. Jairus, an official of the local synagogue, arrived, and when he saw Jesus, he threw himself down at his feet and begged him earnestly, my little daughter is very sick. Please come and place your hands on her so that she will get well and live. Then Jesus started off with him. So many people were going along with Jesus that they were crowding him from every side. And, of course, then there's a kind of a an intermission, as it were, from that story, and it dovetails into the story of a woman who had a bleeding disorder for 12 years, tells us that she'd suffered terribly uh, from her disorder. She'd also suffered at the hands of numerous doctors. No doubt she'd given up hope. Then she heard about Jesus and his supernatural healing power and thought, I've got to see this guy. Now, a little bit of a, a detour here. We'll come back to Jairus and the daughter. But but this woman with her bleeding disorder would have been viewed as unclean every day. And any person that she touched would be unclean for a day as well. She was basically supposed to stay away from society and away from people. So you can imagine horribly lonely and in a lot of discomfort, probably a lot of pain as well. And so she hears about Jesus and she is so desperate for healing that she goes out into the public square, she goes out into a crowd and she starts pushing through the crowd to get to Jesus. Remember, everybody that she touches as she pushes through the crowd, suddenly they're all unclean. (laughs) And she gets to Jesus and she's saying in her heart, if I just touch the edge of his cloak, I'm going to get healed. Amazing faith. And so she reaches out, touches the edge of his cloak, and, of course, healing power goes out of Jesus into her, and Jesus recognises that power has gone out of him, and he says, who just touched me? I was like, I just got an electric shock. Where did that come from? And the disciples look at him and go, there's a massive crowd here, Jesus. They're all jostling against you. What do you mean somebody touched you? But he means someone touched him in a very different way. 
uh, touched him by faith and the healing power of the Holy Spirit came out of him and healed this woman. Of course, when he asked the question, she had nowhere to hide. And, uh, and of course, you can read the rest of the story in Mark chapter 5. But that kind of slows Jesus up on his journey. And then some people come from Jairus's house and they say, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your little girl has died. And Jesus looks at him and says, don't doubt, just believe. And the Bible then tells us that he took three people with him, Peter, James, and John, and they headed off to Jairus's house he left the rest of the disciples, he left the crowd, he left any of his other followers behind and he took his three closest friends to Jairus's house. And we're told that Jairus's daughter was 12 years of age and it's interesting that Mark records that and also that this woman had had a bleeding disorder, a severe disorder for 12 years as well. So she had suffered for as long as Jairus's daughter had been alive. And so um, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe, which is what I just said a moment ago. He gets to the house and the mourners are there. And invariably in the culture of the day, they would pay people to come and mourn. So these were professional mourners. They were all sitting around the lifeless body of Jairus's daughter and they were crying and howling and carrying on. And Jesus says to them, why are you crying? She's not dead, she's just asleep. And then they all burst out laughing. So they switch off the tears and they crack up laughing. Jesus sends them all out. He doesn't want to have any doubt and unbelief around him as he says to this little girl, um, uh, Talitha Kumai, which is little girl, I say, arise. And he takes her by the hand and she gets up and she stands there in front of them all. And um, I love this uh, last verse because it says here in verse 43, Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone. And he said, then give her something to eat. It's a really interesting statement there don't tell anyone, which is where the question comes from, and then give her something to eat. Why? That's because people believe that ghosts and spirits were unable to eat food, and so Jesus told the family to feed the girl to prove that she really was alive. But back to the question, why did Jesus strictly order them to tell nobody about the miracle? As our questioner rightly says, surely you would want to shout this from the housetops. And, of course, invariably the people did. But Jesus says um, for them to remain silent. And he does this on, on several occasions. One of these gives us a clue into why Jesus was so strict about this, and this is the healing of the leper. Also in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1 from verse 43, then Jesus spoke sternly to him and sent him away at once. This is after it healed him. After saying to him, listen, don't tell anyone about this, but go straight to the priest and let him examine you. Then in order to prove to everyone that you are cured, and I'll come back to that statement in a moment, offer the sacrifice that Moses ordered. But the man went away and began to spread the news everywhere. Indeed, he talked so much that Jesus could not go out into a town publicly. Instead, he stayed out in lonely places 
and people came to him from everywhere. So probably a couple of reasons in those verses why Jesus asked people to remain silent. I'll come back to that in a tick. The healing of the deaf man in Mark chapter 7, that once the man was able to hear, his speech impediment was removed and he began to talk without any trouble. Then Jesus ordered the people, so not just the guy but all the people around, not to speak of it to anyone. But the more he ordered them not to, the more they told it. See, human nature has not changed. And all who heard it were completely amazed. How well he does everything, they exclaimed. He even causes the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. And so out of those, I want to suggest to you five reasons why Jesus told people to be quiet when he healed them. Let's have a look at these five. Number one, Jesus wanted people to know the genuineness of the miracles. And so remember the first story that we read there about the leper. In order to prove to everyone that you are cured, offer the sacrifice that Moses ordered. Of course, before that, he said, go and show yourself to the chief priest. And the priest, the chief priest was also a medical doctor, if you like, and um, and and had to be the one who would say, yes, this is a genuine miracle. Yes, you are genuinely healed or cured. And so Jesus wanted this miracle to be attested. He didn't want this guy going everywhere and telling everybody until the priest had said, wow, absolutely, a miracle has taken place. And I love that, you know, because I've been in Pentecostal churches now for over four decades, and I've seen some wonderful healings, and I've experienced some healing in my own life. But sometimes I think we're too glib, and we say, oh, you know, X number of people were healed at our service. But were they really? I think we need to send people to a doctor, to, and especially the doctor who knows about their condition, whatever that might be, and, and have that healing genuinely confirmed by a medical expert. I remember doing that uh, many years ago with a lady who was part of our church congregation and um, she had had an MRI and it had shown a, a mass on the bone in her shin and so it looked like a cancerous mass. The guy said, I want you to come in. We've got to do some more tests on this. In the meantime, she came to church on the Sunday morning. She had told Christy and me, about this. And during the service, we invited her forward, gathered the ministry leaders around her, anointed her with oil because that's what she requested. And then we laid hands on her and prayed for her. She then went back to the same specialist. She had another MRI. And this time, she uh, this, this test, it lasted for over an hour. And she was lying in there thinking, oh my goodness, I must be riddled with cancer, they're, they're finding so much. But after the, the, R, the MRI was done, she got the test results back and they said, look, we're sorry we had to make that go for so long, but we couldn't find the mass and we thought it's got to be here somewhere, but we can't find it anywhere. And so in our church service the following week, we actually showed the two X-rays, the first one with this big mass on the shin bone, and then the second x-ray showing that the leg was completely clear. I've come across so many testimonies like that over the years, but that's the one that really stands out to me. And you can just imagine, you know, the faith of the people is built up 
so strongly because a miracle has taken place. So the first thing there is Jesus wanted people to know the genuineness of the miracle. Secondly, Jesus didn't want the publicity to make him too popular. Now, again, that kind of flies in the face of modern Christianity that is uh, invariably surrounding superstars of the faith and uh, looking for popularity left, right, and centre. But Jesus didn't want this publicity to make him too popular. Uh, The former leper, for example, that Mark talks about, talks so much about his healing miracle that Jesus could not go into the town publicly. He was too much in demand now. And Mark records that Jesus had to restrict his ministry as a result. He had to change the location. Instead of going into the towns, he went to deserted places. And that really dovetails into the third reason I would like to suggest, and that is that Jesus' popularity affected his personal life and his emotions. Remember those words that Mark used. Mark reports that Jesus stayed out in lonely places. I find Mark's choice of words there to be very insightful Remember that Mark's gospel is really Peter's gospel. Mark uh, was the scribe. He was uh, a young guy who was highly educated. He was from a very wealthy family. Peter was a fisherman, maybe was uh, unable to read and write. And so he engaged Mark to write his gospel for him. So the gospel of Mark is really the gospel of Peter. And Peter, as one of Jesus' closest friends, would have had amazing insight into Jesus' life. And so Mark, or Peter, uses that word there that Jesus had to stay out in lonely places. So his popularity affected his personal life and his emotions. No longer was he able to go into town for a while, at least, but he had to stay out in lonely places, deserted places that impacted him. And it's important that we understand that because, yes, Jesus is 100% divine, but he's also 100% human. Jesus experienced all of the emotions that you and I experience. He experienced the highs of joy and he experiences the the, experience the depth of grief and of loneliness as well. And so that's a Another reason why he said, please don't tell anyone, even though no one listened to him. Number four, Jesus didn't want the miracles to detract from his message. The main message that Jesus had was the message of the kingdom. Miracles are wonderful and they attest to the message, but the message, it's the message of the gospel that changes a life now and for eternity. And so Jesus didn't want the miracles that he was performing to detract from his message. People then were the same as people now. A lot of people follow miracles. They follow signs and wonders. If they hear of a church where miracles and signs and wonders are happening, suddenly they're like moths to a flame. They're like bees to honey, right? They're buzzing around the miracles. And I get it to a point. It's exciting. And and also, if you were in need of a miracle, you want to go to a place where a miracle could be possible. So I get all of that. But it's the message of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit that transforms a life now and forever. You see, people can be miraculously healed or cured, but not follow Jesus. 
I know people like that. They've had the most amazing, miraculous encounters with God. He has healed them from sickness and disease, and then they've just gone, well, thank you so much, and wander off on their sweet way. It didn't change them forever. It didn't attract them to the gospel, to the message that can transform a life. So Jesus didn't want miracles detracting from his message. And fifthly and finally, the miracles and crowds made the Pharisees jealous. And you think, well, why is that a problem? Well, it was a problem because it could have sped up the process toward Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. And so Jesus would be cautious because he had a lot to accomplish before he was finally arrested and crucified. Consider Matthew chapter 9 from verse 29. Then Jesus touched their eyes and said, let it happen then just as you believe. And their sight was restored. Jesus spoke sternly to them, don't tell this to anyone. But you guessed it. They left and spread the news about Jesus all over that part of the country. As the men were leaving, some people brought to Jesus a man who could not talk because he had a demon. But as soon as the demon was driven out, the man started talking and everyone was amazed. We have never seen anything like this in Israel, they exclaimed. But the Pharisees said, it is the chief of demons who gives Jesus the power to drive out demons. And this statement was a statement of jealousy that eventually led to Jesus' arrest. And as I said before, Jesus had certain works that the Father had given him. He needed to accomplish those, and so he needed to be cautious. He knew that the Pharisees were going to get increasingly jealous and eventually want to take him out, but he needed to make sure that that didn't happen before the appointed time. The only time Jesus told someone to talk about the miracle that had taken place was uh, the man that was delivered from the legion of demons that we looked at recently. Um, Return to your home, he said to this man. Once he was delivered and dressed and in his right mind, Jesus said, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. In other words, go to the towns of the Decapolis, the 10 towns, and tell what's happened to you. Now, this was a Gentile area that Jesus would visit later with great success. Of course, in that particular account in Luke chapter 8, the people were scared and they asked Jesus to leave them alone, to depart from them. This man, who was well known in the town, uh, the towns, then went around and shared his story and over the next few weeks, months, as he did that, it softened the people to Jesus and Jesus' message. And so uh, Luke records that sometime later, Jesus went back with his disciples to the Decapolis area and the people welcomed him and they welcomed the message um, that he had to share. And so this guy's testimony laid the groundwork for Jesus. Uh, Jesus did not need or desire the same level of publicity in Jewish areas. And so there are a few reasons that Jesus told people to remain silent when he healed them. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and finding help understanding the Bible and how it applies to life. Here at Digging Deeper, we'd appreciate your help letting others know about this podcast. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. And please like Rob Buckingham's public figure page on Facebook 
You can interact with us there and ask questions you'd like Rob to answer in future episodes of Digging Deeper. Now back to Rob. Why did Jesus curse the fig tree? And as part of the answer to this, I'll talk about a couple of things that Jesus was up to in Mark chapter 11. That is cursing the fig tree and also cleansing the temple. And what did these what did these things mean? Um, they are both prophetic acts that have deep significance. So let's read about them in Mark's gospel, first of all. If you want to follow this in your Bibles, Mark chapter 11 from verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And this sounds a little unfair, really, doesn't it? Uh, But I'll explain this for you in a moment. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting there a couple of Old Testament passages that I'll get to in just a moment. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. That gets back to the jealousy that I was talking about in just a moment. When when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And that's an interesting observation there because normally a tree would die from the from the top down, but this one from the roots up. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, anyone who says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. So let's have a look at these two events because they're interesting, they're insightful, and they are highly prophetic about the nation of Israel in the first century. The cursing of the fig tree, first of all. At first reading, it's easy to feel sorry for the fig tree. I mean, the fig tree wasn't doing anything wrong. It was standing there, minding its own business, pushed out some leaves, no fruit yet. And Mark inserts this phrase. When he reached it, he found nothing, nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. As I say, seems highly unfair. But was Mark correct? Somewhat, but not completely. You see, fig trees in Israel fruit twice a year. The early figs in late May, and then the main crop in August, September, and October. As the tree had leaves, it should also have had the first crop of fruit at least developing but there was no fruit on the tree at all, not even any potential fruit. Interesting quote here from the Bible background commentary. If only leaves appeared without the early figs, that tree would bear no figs that year, whether early or late. And so next morning, Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. It worked. 
Wow, this is the best thing since you turned water into wine. As I mentioned previously, this is a prophetic act of deep significance. It was a parable of the religious life of Israel in the first century. Not all of the people, but where the religious life of many of the leaders had become, particularly surrounding the temple. It looked great, but it had no fruit. And then Jesus goes and cleanses the temple. In between these two scenarios, with regards to the fig tree, Jesus purged the temple court of its merchants. Pilgrims needed their local money changed in order to buy sacrificial animals to use in worship. And so when they went into the temple, they would have their local money from wherever they came from. They would get that changed into temple coins, and then they'd be able to go and buy sacrifice and uh, sacrifice the animals. The problem here was probably the amount of room given to commercial practice while precious people were being left outside on the basis of their gender or their ethnicity. So the Gentiles were left out, the women were left out, the eunuchs were left out, uh, the poor and the crippled and all of those people who, by the way, Jesus then invites into the temple after he's cleansed it. All of those people before then were left out. It was like we've got room for money, but we haven't got room for people. Jesus said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? Note that, not just for Israel, but for all nations, even the Gentiles as well, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus quoted two verses from Jeremiah 7 and uh, Isaiah 56, excerpts from verses 1 to 8. Uh, the whole passage from Isaiah 56 reads as follows. And this is very insightful. Listen to the words and think about these words in the light of what I've just said. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Think about that in the light of what I've just said. Let no foreigner say that the Lord will exclude me. Let no eunuch complain. So the sexually different, if you like, let them not complain. Uh, I am only a dry tree for this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs, to them, I will give within my temple and its walls, a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, these I will bring to my holy mountain. Note the word there, mountain, and give them joy in my house of prayer, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. And so by driving certain people out of the temple, Jesus is not protesting the selling of goods in the temple, but rather that the merchants were taking up room that should have been used to welcome others who were being excluded or ill-treated like second, oh, sorry, treated like secondhand people, uh, second-class people. 
uh, people like Gentiles and women and, uh, and, and the uh, disabled and eunuchs and so on. Jesus then quotes Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you. Robbers' dens were places where they stored their loot. Jesus is talking about the temple, which was used to store money raised by selling animals for sacrifice, but it also became a place where the poor were exploited. The priests had become abusive and corrupt, ripping people off and marginalizing those who were not Jewish men. So if you weren't a Jewish man, you were marginalized by these people who saw godliness as a means of financial gain. It's out of this context then that Jesus says those immortal words, have faith in God, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. What's Jesus talking about here? Notice there, uh, he says, anyone who says to this mountain, it's not just any mountain, it's not just a mountain, it's this mountain, this mountain. What he's talking about is the temple, which is built on the Temple Mount. It's still there in Jerusalem. The mount is, not the temple. Jesus is encouraging his disciples to have faith in God for an end to religious corruption and exclusion and to express that faith in prayer, to continue to pray for this mountain to be transformed um, by faith. Uh, But, of course, the mountain was not transformed. And in the end, it was figuratively, metaphorically cast into the sea. So 40 years later, in the middle of um, AD 66, the armies of Rome started to gather around Jerusalem and lay siege. There was a a three-and-a-half-year period. The Bible refers to it as the time of great tribulation. The great tribulation is not something we're waiting for. It's something that happened uh, for three-and-a-half years, or as Revelation says, 1,260 days, which is three-and-a-half lunar years, um, of the great tribulation from mid-66 to 70. And in AD 70, of course, the armies of Titus eventually sacked Rome. The walls came down. They set the temple on fire. They pushed the stones of the temple over each other. Not one stone was left there upon another because they wanted to scrape the gold out that had melted uh, through the intense heat of the temple. And over a million people lost their lives. Um, But the prophecies, of course, of Jesus, particularly Matthew chapter 24, that talks about that time period, the Christians listened and saw the signs that Jesus gave them and they all escaped from Jerusalem. They fled to the hill country of Judea uh, to a little village by the name of Pella and not one Christian, uh, Josephus, the historian, tells us not one Christian lost their life uh, during the battle of Rome against Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Israel. Sadly, Christianity through the centuries has often re-established the mountain of religious corruption and exclusion. And so we need to pray this prayer wherever we see people being excluded from God's temple, from the church of the living God. Uh, I, I think it's awful that churches are still excluding some people. There are still churches where women, for example, are not allowed to 
hold a, a leadership or an eldership uh, role, even though the New Testament is replete with women in leadership uh, and women as apostles and preachers and pastors and so on. Uh, LGBTIQ people are still not welcomed into so many churches, and so churches uh, are still keeping people out. All people must be allowed to come and worship God and permitted to grow in relationship with him, regardless of their gender, their sexual orientation, their ethnicity, their ability, their race. And with that in mind, um, was it toward the end of last year, Bayside Church launched an inclusion statement. You may have heard this before, but I'll read it to you again. It's on the Bayside Church website. And this is a really important statement for us as a church community. And I would love to see all of God's churches uh, adopt a policy of non-discrimination like this. And so this is what our inclusion statement says. At Bayside Church, we believe that every person is created in God's image. All are equally worthy of respect, dignity, and love, regardless of gender, sexuality, age, ability, race, or ethnicity. Everyone is invited, welcomed, and supported to grow in their relationship with God and each other. Everyone is encouraged to use their gifts and abilities to serve God and others. At Bayside Church, we are committed to creating a safe space for all. We do this through clear policies and pathways so that everyone can feel safe and nurtured. At Bayside Church, we courageously love and empower people to become like Jesus. And so churches need to make a decision and a declaration that they refuse to discriminate against anyone based on something that people cannot choose. So no one chooses their ethnicity. No one chooses the colour of their skin. No one chooses their ability or lack thereof. No one chooses their sexual orientation. No one chooses their gender. And so discrimination is always when we treat people differently based on something they haven't been able to choose. And it's important that churches um, are able to say we will not discriminate uh, on any of those things. And so any barrier to people coming to Jesus then is a mountain that needs to be removed. Any attitude that would exclude those for whom Jesus died is a mountain that needs to be removed. Any individual church or organisation that restricts God's grace is a mountain that needs to be removed. And any teaching or Bible interpretation that maligns or isolates is a mountain that needs to be removed. And so that's why Jesus cursed the fig tree. It was a prophetic rebuke for the fruitlessness of a religious system that discriminated against certain people. And I believe based on that, it's an incredibly relevant topic to the church today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Every Wednesday, a new episode of Digging Deeper is released. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with others and rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. If you have a question or topic you'd like Rob to address, please contact us at Rob Buckingham's Public Figure Facebook page. Join us next week as Pastor Rob discusses Reformed theology, how it started and is it biblical. All that and more next week. We hope you'll join us then.